encourage you to turn there in a pew Bible or on your app or however else you find those passages. Second Corinthians 12, I'm going to read the first 10 uh, verses. Pay attention, it's a little bit unusual. Let's go with that. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I will not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. So this week, the picture fits the series. So this is actually the, uh, the core sermon for this whole series. It comes second simply because we wanted to do the star gifts, and clearly that was about the power of words, and so we did the power of word ones first, and now I'm doing the foundational one that undergirds the whole thing. I don't know if you'd like to know that stuff, but now you do. Looking at this picture, you see somebody with all of their strength their power, climbing a rope. And a little more observation tells you that the rope that they're climbing has a pretty clear weak spot in it. I think this is a wonderful illustration of human power, right? All of our human power is irrelevant because usually what we are using our power for is something that does not have the strength to carry us further. We need something more. That's what we are talking about in this series, and that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, there, thanks. So this series is about power awareness, being aware of the fact that we are all people with power, and we're going to look at different areas of power and come to understand them, understanding both, of course, the good and positive uses of power as a gift from God and how power is incredibly dangerous because when we have power and misuse it, it hurts and wrecks and confuses and does all kinds of negative things as well. And so today we're talking about the power of weakness, and as I've said, this is kind of a foundational, this is the foundational ser- sermon in this series, in my humble opinion anyways. 
So we're going to look at a bit of fun writing by Paul. Um, I say that carefully. I'm not dissing the Bible. I, I'm very much convinced that the Bible is an incredible book, but it's also a strange book in many ways. Strange in the way that it was not written to us in this era. And if you want to hear, hear a whole much more about that, come out on Tuesday nights, 7.30 in the council room. That's my first ad for my course starting this week. We will talk about that. Because Paul here... Um, is boasting about how he's not boasting, right? This is one of those really cool swirling things. I'm going to take, it, take you through it a little bit slowly because the first time you read this passage, you're going, what did he say? What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? And at the end, we get to the amazing stuff, and we're going to look at the, the amazing lines that he has in there, like, your grace is sufficient for me, and my, uh, in my weakness, Christ is strong, and all those kinds of things. But this is the setup for it, so I'm going to walk you through some of his fun writing about boasting and not boasting and so on. So who and where are we talking about here? He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And if you listen long enough to what he says in this passage, you become clear that, wait a minute, the man that he knows is himself. This is his story, because he's the one who's boasting about it. But he's trying so hard not to be boastful as he boasts about it that he says, maybe it's somebody else that I'm talking about. And this is just Paul's uh, creative way of working through this. And he gets caught up to the third heaven. And you all know, of course, where third heaven is, right? You got first heaven, then you got your second heaven, then your third heaven, where the better people go. And it goes all the way up to seventh heaven. No, no, I don't know how it works. We don't know how it works. There, there's, the Bible doesn't actually give us a map. Right? Dante gave us a map. I highly recommend that you read that with caution if you look at it at all. Right? Um, it has unfortunately reshaped the way we read the Bible, um, but that's a whole other topic for another time. Um, so third heaven is some expression that Paul knew, and probably Jewish people did have an idea of seven heavens and so on. It's not the core of biblical understanding of heaven. So we're just going to take it that he was caught up to some place in heaven that he understood. Right? and that we're not exactly sure where that is. So it is Paul, and we're not sure, but it was caught up into the presence of God. And then this unknown or beyond words reality, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I think that's a pretty powerful statement. So imagine yourself, because we've clued in now that this is actually Paul talking about himself. Imagine that you've had such an experience that you're not sure if it was an out-of-body experience, if you even know what that is, or an in-body experience that you were actually present there. You're not sure if you were dreaming or awake. Right? That's strange and powerful, right? And that's kind of the thing he's getting at, just kind of leaning into this ecstatic experience. It was an awesome experience. He was caught up to paradise, right? So he's putting paradise and third heaven together. That makes lots of sense, right? The idea of, of heaven as we understand it is a return to the state of paradise, the state of, of fullness and holiness with God. And I heard inexpressible things, things that nobody is permitted to tell, right? And, and it, it strikes me that I think what's going on for Paul is that part of his calling um, as a missionary is that he has this special call from God, and I, I'm, my sense is that this was his road to Damascus experience, right? He's walking along, he's trying to wipe out Christianity, and God, boom, blinds him with a light, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, right? And totally turns his life around, and he gets sent off for a while, and that's what he's talking about here. God has, or Paul has this amazing experience from God 
where he's basically told, this is your calling, and it's so deeply impressed upon him, but he's also told, this is, this is not for you to share. None of that, you won't be able to share what happened there. And so he's, in this strange, difficult way, trying to express this incredible, overpowering, beyond hum human experience kind of thing that he had going on that shaped his ministry. Be pretty cool. So I'm gonna try and put it in our common language. This is what he's saying so far. Paul met Jesus in a powerful and life-changing way. It is beyond description. It is humbling and empowering at the same time. That's kind of boring when I say it that way, don't you think? Isn't it way cooler the way Paul said it and put all that emphasis and feeling into it that you, you don't hear that it was beyond experience. You experience as you read it. I'm not even sure what he's talking about here. And he's going, exactly. You can't be sure what I was talking about. Okay, that's the preamble. That's the setup. Let me get here. The infamous thorn in the flesh. Anybody else ever called somebody their thorn in the flesh? Talk like that? No, just me? Just curious if you've used that. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, see, Paul's admitting it was indeed him, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. And you know, of course, that Bible interpreters everywhere have had a heyday trying to figure out what is the thorn in the flesh. And good news, if you send me $29.99 in a sealed envelope, I will give you the right answer. No, I won't. We don't know. Very important things to be able to say when you're doing biblical interpretation. There are some thoughtful answers that are worth leaning into. But if we were to know this inexpressible thing and what the thorn is, the Bible would have just simply said, and my thorn was this. But we don't need to know, and therefore we are not told. That's a basic, simple biblical interpretation thing. And yes, if you want to know a few more of those, come on out on Tuesdays. I was given a thorn in my flesh. Now, we all do know this. What does it feel like to get a thorn in your flesh? A sliver, right? And then the sliver, normally what we do is we'll get tweezers or something or a needle and we'll get it out. And if it's really bad, we'll get a doctor to do that. But what if that sliver never came out? What if you never got rid of it? What if it, that was this ongoing pain in your life and your experience and what if you became convinced as paul obviously did that it was actually a messenger from satan that this was actually something to remind you of something now for some of you this is not an imaginary journey plenty of us have things in our lives which have not been taken away from us that haunt us torment us give us pain challenge us test us tempt us right? This is the kind of thing Paul's talking about. The good news is we do not need to know exactly what Paul's was. It's very fun for people to try and guess and interpret and so on, because what we really need to know is what actually is the thorn in the flesh that I'm dealing with? What do I need to pay attention to that seems to be God's message for me? Because, I'll read the verse first, three times I, Paul, pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. This is also one of those places where the Bible reminds us, first of all, that it's okay to lament and go, God, this is horrible. I can't stand having to fight with this all the time and to wrestle with God like Jacob did and say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why can't you take this away from me? And sometimes the answer is no. 
and that's hard. So we are uh, in a couple of months, um, the prayer team has decided we're going to invite Emily Vendonk here, and we're going to learn again about praying for healing and trusting in God for healing. But also when we do that, we always know, we don't always know why or when God is going to heal. And so we have to do this thing all the time as followers of Jesus. We have to absolutely trust that God can and will and wants to heal. And we have to absolutely accept that sometimes God doesn't heal for different reasons. And the hardest part, I think, for most of us is we can't actually explain it further than that. We sit in that reality with God. And so we're allowed to lament, which is crying out. We're allowed to wrestle with God, which is having an argument with him and saying, what are you doing? This makes no sense. It's not fair. But we also have to accept that sometimes, even when we are the Apostle Paul and we plead three times to have it taken away, God says no. God says no. And sometimes we want this to be sort of a, like a prescription. We want the Bible to give us the exact number of times we're supposed to plead before we stop asking. So here it says three. Jesus prayed three times in Gethsemane. And you might think, oh, three is the absolute right number. Three is certainly descriptive of what Jesus did. It's descriptive of what Paul does here. But for some of us, we're actually meant to continue to plead with God and to wrestle with God and lament. And for others of us, there's a sense of, no, I know now. It's time to simply accept, as Paul does, that this is as far as it's going to go. So, this is, I believe, a truth spoken in love by Jesus to Paul. He said to me, God said to him, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's okay if your preferred answer was, yes, I'm going to heal you. But sometimes when that answer is no, this is an important thing to hang on to, right? Now, this requires love to understand. Because this isn't a line we just pop out whenever somebody's struggling with something. And someone says, oh man, I got this pain. They'll say, yeah, you, we don't just go up and say, that's your thorn in the flesh. God's grace is made um, God's grace is sufficient for you. He'll take care of this. Right? That's that reality of listening and requiring wisdom and wrestling with God and staying in those moments and trying to understand even when we recognize we might not have a final answer. And what I'm saying to you is don't too quickly use these incredibly beautiful lines because you also don't know if it's somebody else's thorn or if it's something that's going to be healed. There's a dynamic there of waiting on God and trusting in God no matter what. There's a... Oops. Sorry, can you take me back a whole bunch? It's a slow response. Next one. No, sorry, next one forward. <laughs> Thank you. So humble wisdom is required. Because Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Boasting, even about your weakness, as Paul has illustrated really well in this, is a dangerous activity and game to enter into. Enter cautiously. Be deeply aware, be deeply humble about what is your inability, what is your weakness, what is your challenge, what is your temptation. 
But even boasting about that requires a wisdom of going, God, is this my time to speak? Is this something I need to lean into? Is this something I need to be careful with? Or is this something that I can deeply um, lean into? Humble wisdom required. And this, because this whole passage gets us to this incredible truth of the death-resurrection pattern. You know, right, that this following Jesus thing is a thing where we understand that there's nothing more important than that we die to self that Christ may live. As one author that I've been reading lately says, the thing God wants most for you is that you die. And when you just say it like that, that's a bit shocking, don't you think? The thing that God wants most for you is that you die. What he means, of course, is this leaning into this understanding, like Paul says here in, to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so there's this, this strange, complex reality of following Jesus that requires that something about me, we don't think first and foremost it's my physical self, there's something about me that has to die away, that has to be put to the side, that has to be let go of, that, that has to die so that Christ can fully live inside of me. When I talk about our identity being in Christ, Christ living in us, what we're saying is, I have, I have done all I can to let God drag my broken self out so that he can enter me with his spirit and with Jesus, and he can live in me instead. In our ongoing journey as followers of Jesus, figuring out how do I let go of things? How do I die to self? What do I put aside so that Christ can live in me more fully? That's the calling of following Christ. I must die that he can be strong. In my weakness, he is strong. And so I want to give you these questions. In what weakness is Christ your strength? What's your thorn in the flesh? What's the thing that you battle and need to require some grace to understand? God might just leave me in this journey. He might leave me in this space. I might need to continue figuring this piece out. And where do you see Christ's strength in that? And then a second question, what needs to die in you? What do you need to let go of? that true life might rise. And at this point, we run into what I would call the weakness of preaching. Because there's a lot of you, and we don't have time to hear from all of you what you need to let die and what you need to let rise. And my understanding of human nature is that unless there is some conversation where your voice gets used or your pen gets used, if you want to write it out, this will be an interesting exercise where you assess whether you like the conversation or not. For you to actually let something die and let Christ live in you requires you in relationship saying, this is what it is. This is what I'm working on. This is what I'm letting go of. This is where I need Christ to step into my life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to prime the pump. I'm going to give you a whole bunch. You may assume that I have worked on or dealt with or thought about all of these for my life. And I want you somewhere, maybe in your small group, maybe with whoever you came with that you know, maybe in some other context, to think about these, work on these yourself. Because as I said, this is foundation. This is what we're about. This is what we do. So maybe, and probably, all of us need to die to pride, to presumption, 
the pride that we know enough or have enough in ourselves that we got this, that we can hang in there. And if we die to pride, we will let rise a humble awareness that there's lots of space for us to grow and expand and learn. Maybe we need to die to being judgmental of others, of quickly jumping to conclusions about what's going on for everybody else, and rise to a humble attention to who they are and what their story is, and more importantly, that whatever they're struggling with that makes them who they are that we judge is probably something we too are working on. Maybe we need to die to putting on a mask, of dressing up, of keeping up appearances, of trying to look the way we think we want to look to others. And when we die to that, we'll rise to humble, authentic expression of our true selves, even when it hurts. Maybe you need to die to righteous anger, that warm feeling of being absolutely right and the other person being in the wrong that Jesus calls us to die to and instead rise to forgiveness and letting go and restoration of relationships. Maybe you need to die to earning your place, proving your goodness, protecting God, or paying him back. When we die to those things, we rise to an awareness that we were welcomed while we were yet sinners. Or maybe you need to die to talking your way out of it, putting on a good excuse, rationalizing, explaining things away, and rise to simple, humble honesty. Yeah, I did that. I don't know why. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And maybe you need to die to control. Controlling things, people, experiences, your surroundings, and with that, fixing them, or yourself, or others. When we die to control and fixing things, we rise to a humble trust and dependence on God. God needs you to die. He needs you to allow Jesus, the true human being, to live in you. And the journey of following Jesus is that one of letting go, of letting die, and praying and trusting that all God's goodness will come in that place. This is a difficult and challenging journey, and one that, prom that God promises, I've already completed it for you, just step in. We're going to do that in a minute with communion. I pray that you will do that with others in your small group, in your family, in whatever Christian relationships you hold. And I pray that that becomes our ongoing journey as a community in Christ. Amen.